Hello, this is Jeremiah Jenny, and welcome to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. We are broadcasting today once again high above the Dongcheng District of Beijing. My esteemed co-host David Moser is off in the wilds of, I think, Hebei or somewhere. We're not totally sure, but he'll be back very soon. With me, though, in the studio is Isabel Nepstead, the CEO of Bellaterra Consulting that provides sustainability consulting in the food and agriculture supply chains, bridging China and the world. Isabel's been in China, well, really since 2010 as a student and then later working here. And so we're going to talk to Isabel today about that journey uh, from student here all the way to running her own consulting firm. Uh, Isabel, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Jeremiah. Really happy to be here. So let me ask, was your initial interest in the environment or was the initial interest in China when you first decided, you know, way back in college that you were going to study abroad, come to somewhere? Was it China that interested you? Was it environment? How did that how did that decision come about? Yeah, I get a lot of questions of why China, and I think it really starts first with the environment. Uh, I actually grew up in Brazil and in the heart of the Amazon uh, in the city of Belém, uh, and because my father was an uh, ecologist, and that really sparked my interest in the environment and environmental protection. Uh, And then it moved into the food and agriculture space, but having Grown up in Brazil uh, in a different culture, I was always very interested in uh, learning different cultures, learning different languages. And when it came to picking a language, I thought that Chinese would be uh, the most um, uh, impactful. And my brother had picked Arabic. And so I, I sort of didn't have an initial interest in the culture and history per se in China, but I started studying Chinese in my undergraduate. And it was really my study abroad experience and learning more about uh, the culture and history and being immersed in the country that then I really fell in love with China and really seeing China and Asia as the future of the world, being in the U.S. and Brazil, too, where agriculture is a big industry and people are constantly talking about China and especially farmers you know, talking about uh, exporting agriculture commodities to the Chinese market. So uh, it first started with the environment, but really seeing that China is the future. And if we want to protect the global environment, addressing climate change, biodiversity, we really need to go to China and see how China can play a role in global uh, environmental governance. Was there an aha moment for you when you first came to China? Think, you know, when you, you, said, when you came here thinking about studying the language. Was there a moment or a place somewhere you were, you traveled to that kind of really, it brought it together for you? Or was it a gradual kind of growing awareness while you were here? It was definitely a gradual creeping awareness. And I do have to applaud the study abroad program, IES, because really immersing ourselves in living in a homestay, having Chinese roommates, and also traveling, because then you get to see the countryside. And China is, uh, there's such a stark contrast between urban China and rural China, and being able to go out and travel and talk to people. I think I really fell in love with 
China and, you know, seeing this ecological civilization, as China has coined the the term from President Xi, is going to Yunnan and, uh, you know, seeing the agriculture production, but also the beautiful landscapes, the the environment, and uh, also just seeing that sort of contrast between how to uh, develop the economy, uh, the local economy, but also protecting the environment. And so after you graduated from college, you, you you came almost immediately back to China for work. What was your first job here and how did that help develop some of your interests or did it help to focus your interest in any particular area? Yeah, so when I came back to China, uh, I worked for some NGOs and doing environmental education and then also uh, for most of the last, uh, I guess, yeah, the first eight years uh, in in China working, was working for a Dutch uh, NGO called Solidaridad. But it's funny, thinking back early on to the very first years of working for uh, NGOs, you know, people would approach us in our activities doing environmental education in schools. And, uh, you know, they would say, this is the job of the government. Uh, And so sort of, you know, there was a, definitely a different level of awareness on environmental protection, whereas now, you know, we see China's carbon neutrality commitment, the um, China hosting the biodiversity COP15 in Kunming and having the global biodiversity framework. Uh, so there's really growing awareness in the past few years uh, on environmental protection. And then also seeing the smog, uh, you know, isn't really you know, an issue now. So I think, but then also just agriculture and food industry. I mean, everyone has to eat every day and, you know, food culture in China is so rich and uh, very diverse. So also being able to travel to different provinces, visiting our projects where we were working with, you know, soy farmers in uh, Dongbei or working with cotton farmers in, in Hebei or, you know, tea projects in Yunnan and Guizhou, really seeing that there's just such a diverse landscape in China and it's you know also very you know fragmented as well and so it's it's just you know very complex. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I think kind of the transitioning of food and agriculture in China has been something at least for me watching more as a consumer than somebody who's actually studying the market, but the idea first of all that a lot of the the food industry in China has kind of moved towards or away from you know the old, you know, we think of China like the markets and fresh food and grandma cooking, and now, of course, it's moved into a very highly specialized, often very highly processed form of food production, you know, assembly line, putting together kits of hot pot for the Y Mai masses. And there has to be, I, I, f- I often feel when I'm seeing this, it's incredibly convenient, and I certainly take advantage of it far too much. But they all, I think I also get the sense that a lot of the same problems that emerged in American agriculture, American consumption patterns, you know, things like palm oil, the kind of, you know, agricultural products or the processes that often lead to health and environmental problems are starting to creep in as well here. Is that something you're seeing from, uh, from your perspective, studying this a lot more closely? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, there's also a lot of discussion and debate about whether the small family uh, size farms are more uh, sustainable or ecological versus the big farms. One sector that we also work in is the livestock sector. So looking especially at the swine industry and seeing how, yeah, they do produce a lot of waste and manure. But is it, you know, is are the small farms more sustainable or the big farms more sustainable where they have 
have a more sort of uh, robust system that can manage and uh, have sort of more higher technology to manage uh, the farms or small uh, farms where they just have a smaller volume of manure, uh, for example. But yeah, I, I think China definitely looks towards the U.S. and big industrial agriculture countries to learn from. We've also taken a lot of delegations of Chinese companies abroad to uh, Europe, to the U.S., to Brazil, Argentina to learn best practices, uh, and also to yeah to Indonesia to see palm oil. Uh, I do think that yeah we almost need to all the whole world needs to sort of take a step back and go back in time to sort of the traditional uh, agriculture. But I think at least we see growing awareness of of farmers. Uh, It's still not totally a systematic approach. We see sort of if there's an issue, it'll be sort of addressed with, oh, let's apply this subsidy. It's not so systematized and linked together, whereas agriculture really needs to be working in harmony with nature and also uh, thinking about all aspects. Because if you focus too much on this, then, uh, you know, something else might, um, you know, be ignored. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Because in the story of the environmental changes that, I, that we've witnessed in the last 10 or 12 years here in China, you know, there are problems that are creeping in, but there's also things, as you pointed out, air pollution. You know, you, know, you kind of know when someone's not been in Beijing for a while, if the first thing they mention, they, t- they say when you say, I'm from Beijing, is they make a joke about the smog. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's great. That's pretty 2013, bro. It, it, don't get me wrong. We have our bad days, but it's nothing like it was 10 years ago, the water quality in the city, you look at the lakes, you look at the streams, you look at what they've done with some of the river systems here. It's pretty amazing. Around the city, there's a green belt, you know, there's there's protected wetlands. There's a lot of things happening in China that are very impressive. And, and of course, that's part of the story. And the other part of the story, too, is that there also are some things that are still great challenges. Things I think of is in the United States, you know, and we benefited a lot from cleaning up our environment, mainly by exporting some of the more polluting industries and extractive, you know, resource extractive industries to other parts of the world where we couldn't see the costs of what we were, the true cost of what we were buying. And I do feel some, I do feel to a certain extent that's starting to happen in China. You know, I, I look at like statistics like forest cover in China has come back in a, in a relatively robust way. I think now it's up to like 14%. It's pretty, is it almost double what it was a few years ago? On the other hand, amount of like tropical hardwoods that get imported to China from other parts of the world continues to increase. And so again, there's, there's always that trade-off, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think seeing, especially China focusing on food security and uh, you know, balancing between self-reliance and imports. So we have a lot of discussions with Brazil, with the US, with Indonesia on sort of how to, to balance that. And really, I think it comes down to how to produce more with less. Uh, and I also, yeah, seeing a new uh, policy on uh, China trying to increase the amount of arable land uh, and, you know, to rely less on, on imports. And I think definitely commend China. And I think they're really you know, with the recent five-year plan, seeing that they're really taking a holistic approach and addressing all aspects with food security, rural revitalization. Uh, It's quite a a balancing act, but I think they have to really work with uh, other countries and think about, you know, how to feed uh, 8 billion people uh, and and especially uh, in China with the the amount of arable land and, and water resources. One thing in your career I've noticed is you, you in 
interact, you've interacted a lot with stakeholders from all different parts of from China in terms of people who are farmers to officials to you know conferences to academics. Are there shared concerns? Are there concerns that one group has that aren't necessarily always heard by by other groups? These conversations are, are conversations happening between the stakeholders, or are sometimes the messages? Are there some messages that aren't getting through? Yes, I mean, I would say one issue that I've been working on with lots of different stakeholders and partners is the issue of imported deforestation. So,、uh, soybeans, beef, and palm oil are、uh, related to、uh, deforestation in in Latin America and Southeast Asia. So, this has been an ongoing issue that I've been working on with my、uh, different organizations and partners, and still working on it today. And I think it's. Addressing it with、uh, Chinese stakeholders, there tends to be,、uh, you know, different priorities. So it's it's been difficult to how to angle deforestation and how to see it as a concern and a risk、uh, here in China, and you know, considering China's role in global supply chains、uh, as a major market. So I think that's been hard to sort of how do we. Put it into some of these more、uh, sort of urgent、um, priorities. For example, in the livestock、uh, sector, the swine industry has been facing African swine fever. Also,、um, you know, different industries are very cost sensitive. So, you know, how can they consider these、uh, sustainability issues when you, if you need to pay more for traceability to guarantee you don't have deforestation in your supply chain? So, it has been definitely sort of an uphill. Battle、uh, on this, but I do see that in the last few years, as more companies are looking at ESGs and looking at sustainability issues, looking at reducing their emissions, they are seeing deforestation as a, a concern and an, an issue.、Uh, and recently, also working with、uh, the different、uh, ministries led by the Ministry of Ecology and Environment、uh, to have more within the ministries a dialogue to discuss. And even within that,、um, there's so many different perspectives and. Views on, you know, who takes responsibility, what's the role, but it's also just, I think, positive to see these small steps being made, both from、uh, really led by different、uh, NGOs and international organizations, but also the government.、Uh, we see Europe as well already set up a deforestation uh, regulations, uh, and then companies too, especially multinationals that have. Uh, zero deforestation policies at global level, so they also have to see how they're going to implement in China, and then helping Chinese companies too and their clients or suppliers to also work together with them. So I think in the last few years, finally seeing progress after you know so many years of just discussing, but really being quite a uphill battle. It's really interesting because you mentioned, of course, it's having the ministries talk to each other, and I, I feel like one of the great misconceptions often of China from people who aren't here. Is that the government is in fact like a monolith, and you know, just because it speaks with one voice, it is only one voice inside the government. And I think anyone who works here, particularly in a particular sector, will quickly learn that there's like again, there are different opinions. They don't always get talked about publicly, but they do have some different you know priorities that they need to work out. And one of those areas I think it, it has affected has been NGOs. You know, we, we've seen over the last ten years a, a sharp decline. In the number of NGOs, particularly international NGOs, and, and the curtailment of their activities in China, but 
it feel do you feel that the environment maybe one area just that has been it's easier to maintain an NGO presence or have, have they have environmental NGOs also felt something of a pinch from maybe at parts of the government that are less receptive to this kind of help yeah definitely I think um, especially during the pandemic uh, seeing a change of of uh, attitude uh, so it is it is challenging I think but of course have to comply to the the regulations uh, and laws and so I think it is different than you know how NGOs work in other countries so it's sort of always have to sort of adapt to the the Chinese context in your earlier career you worked for an NGO now you're working, you, you found your CEO of your own consulting company, working on and looking at many of the same issues. What do you feel is the advantage of working as a company versus perhaps maybe even your earlier career as an NGO in addressing some of these challenges? We've always, as an NGO before, we always wanted to engage with, with companies, the industry to help them in their green transition or sustainable transition. But I think that as an NGO, you're doing sort of charity work. And so it, it sort of comes down to the, the business view of it as this is a charity. I mean, we would pay for, you know, whole delegations to go to Indonesia from an NGO. The NGO would cover these, these costs. And it actually, I think, businesses don't see the value in that if you're providing something for free. Now, actually... As a, a business, you know, we, of course, also have to survive and we're uh, a company and we're, we can provide services and uh, companies are now willing to pay for that. And they also need to fulfill their ESG requirements or sustainability requirements. So there's a growing market for that. And uh, I, I see that, um, you know, companies, if, yeah, if you have to pay, then there's some value in that. Whereas previously working for an NGO, it's sort of it's a bit questionable. And I think even sometimes when we visited companies as an NGO, they would ask us, you know, who's paying your salaries? Where's your money coming from? And it is, it's a, it's a good question. Why are we doing this? Um, so I think uh, companies being a company, um, you know, being a business, it makes sense uh, in the Chinese context and it companies and, and more people can sort of understand I think a lot of people are interested in this idea of like social entrepreneurship and I, I, I for, and perhaps even some people outside of China, maybe, you know, social entrepreneurship in China, that almost seems like a really difficult road. But in fact, it's, there are opportunities here. And if you, if you don't mind, without getting too much into like the nuts and bolts and like, you know, that kind of thing, just maybe walk us through the, the process from like, okay, the idea of like, okay, we, the, this may work, this is an idea that may work better than the NGO. How do you, how did you go about kind of taking that idea and making it a reality to set up uh, Bellaterra Consulting here um, and to be able to operate in this way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I left my previous job for an, uh, at an NGO here in Beijing, thinking I was going to move back to the U.S. And then the pandemic hit, and I decided to stay. Um, you know, I realized that okay, I can um, you know start consulting. I you know worked for different uh, organizations, but luckily with my previous job, I had really built up a network uh, and different connections, and that really helped. So you know, people are actually reaching out 
out to me to provide consulting services. So it just made sense being in China to set up uh, a company. Uh, I would say I first thought it was just going to be myself and it would just be, you know, used sort of behind to just cover all of the legal requirements and, you know, work visa and everything. But uh, actually the demand really, really grew. Uh, And so now I have an eight person team uh, and we luckily don't have to really market ourselves. I'm very grateful for that. But I think really sort of persevering in China and seeing that there is really a unique opportunity, especially uh, working on uh, different relationships like China-Brazil, China-Argentina, China-Indonesia, and really serving as a bridge between uh, China and the world on sustainability issues. Uh, And seeing that, um, especially within China, there's a lot of companies and agriculture companies that, uh, you know, really do look abroad to see what are the best practices, uh, also bringing different international standards to China and localizing them so that uh, you know farmers and companies in China can can use these standards in China. So um, yeah, it's sort of, it's evolved, but I would say very uh, naturally uh, and uh, luckily really also grateful for, for my team, uh, mostly uh, Chinese, also a, a previous colleague who we worked together in Northeast China doing uh, the sustainable soy uh, standard and, you know, yeah, seeing a lot of uh, opportunities here and, and, yeah, slowly growing and expanding our our services and our, our products and, um, you know, developing some uh, ESG and sustainability reports for different uh, multinationals and, and companies. But, yeah, again, trying to be very, um, you know, focusing on our, you know, being professional and, and quality, but I think also really connecting between what's right for China and localization versus what types of uh, international expertise and experience can also help China in its own development. Well, I think it's great. I mean, if you go from, you know, an idea, like a company began officially, and I think it was 2021, is that right? Two years later, organic growth, you have a team of eight. That's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good trajectory right there. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I really didn't expect uh, we'd be where we are now, but I think, yeah, there's so many uh, opportunities coming up. And I think uh, now it's a matter of having, you know, a firm structure in place uh, so that we can, you know, keep growing and, you know, take on more projects. Without without talking too much in detail about your clients, you know, just to protect their, their businesses. But I'm just curious, what are some of the, what kind of client would come to you? What are some of the, what are some of the problems they're seeking your company to solve? You know, what are, what are some of the challenges they bring you and the projects that, that, that you find most, that, that are, there, are there particular types of, are there particular types of projects that people seem to come over the, the transom more often than others? Yeah, I mean, we definitely, you know, we work on some reports and we are able to get a a good amount of firsthand data and information and and policies in China. And I think that's incredibly valuable to share with outside of China to, you know, show what's really happening in China. And uh, having the boots on the ground is also really important. Uh, Also being connected to producers in China, especially in Northeast China, So I think one of our major groups of clients or types of clients are multinationals who come into China. They have a global sustainability policy. Usually it's zero or zero deforestation, and uh, they need to achieve this before 
2025 or 2030. And they have a lot of suppliers in China or, um, you know, or clients, and they have to, you know, meet those needs. So we help them um, both with uh, localizing their strategy, whether their strategy can really be applied in China, uh, because sometimes uh, it doesn't really match with the local context. So we'll help to uh, adjust their policy, give them uh, suggestions on how they can implement in China. We also get very much into the technical side where they want to use some of the sustainability standards that we we support uh, in China and uh, help implement with their suppliers and also the producers in China, especially Northeast China. So we'll help connect the whole supply chain for especially different uh, food and beverage companies. And so they want to source, for example, sustainable corn. Uh, and so we help to connect them with and communicate with all of their suppliers. So they'll have a supplier code that's listing out all of their sustainability criteria. So it's, you know, environmentally sound, socially viable, and communicate with all of their suppliers and help them connect and also then connect to farms. So uh, connecting with farms who can then implement these standards and then doing an auditing to check that, you know, the, the farm is um, in compliance with our standard how big a farm are we talking about here? Because I have this vision of like taking like, I know some of these multinationals think, you know, these long checklists of sustainability standards and like bringing that in in a clipboard for father, you know, farmer Wong up in like, you know, one of the counties in Northern Hebei and like, hi, are your pigs cruelty free or something? I mean, I just wonder, is that seems like a, it seems like a particular challenge trying to translate not just some of these standards which were developed and in places with different agricultural practices and also sort of at a different stage of agricultural development, but also trying to translate the reality of like, okay, so I talked to Farmer Wong and he looked at your list and thought, you know, you people are crazy. So how do you, how do you kind of, what's the, what's the strategy to kind of making this kind of bring this together? Is it, as you said, is it developing a whole another plan? Is it, give and take? Is it educating on both sides? How does this, how does this usually play out? Yeah, I think the attitudes and mindset of farmers is very important and it's definitely not an easy task. So we, we do have cases where some of our clients approach us and they're having a lot of difficulty in convincing farmers to apply to the long criteria of uh, sustainability uh, principles. Uh, we that's, that's where it's important for us to identify farms that are more ready. So China has been implementing what's called the Global GAP, the uh, Global Good Agricultural Practices Standard. So through that, it gives some farmers who are already implementing a good, uh, already sort of a step up uh, in implementing uh, more stringent uh, or more higher standards. So through that system and my some of my team members have previously worked on Global Gap here in China, so they can help to identify uh, farms that are ready. And I mean, some some of these farms, it's uh, state-owned enterprises. Some farms, it's a group of cooperatives. Uh, it really depends uh, on the, the region. You know, I think Northeast China is much more... Uh, advanced, we can say, and really, you know, it's such a um, sort of a priority region, whereas uh, we also talk to, you know, for example, garlic farmers in Shandong, and it's much 
more difficult to convince them. So again, it does depend on uh, where you are. And But again, if there is a, a market demand, then the farmers are quite uh, willing to do it. And we find that if some multinationals, although they're trying to source you know, corn or garlic, uh, usually it's a very small amount, actually, which isn't enough to convince the farmers. So what we've done is actually brought some of our clients together to jointly source, for example, corn uh, or um, or garlic uh, or fruits so that then they can uh, help support that farmer so that all of their their corn production is sustainably produced. And then we also then connect it to the processing facility. So it's all verified under our standard and that can help to reduce costs and uh, it it ends up being a win-win because if it's only one company it's probably a very small volume per year uh, maybe you know less than 5,000 tons Uh, and so for the farmer that's you know they would do all of the sustainability uh, efforts and then only be able to sell 5,000 of their uh, 20,000 tons at the sustainability premium price Uh, so that's why it's really important to bring these different uh, downstream companies together to source jointly. I mean, on top of everything else that you're doing, I mean, there's like levels of Chinese language ability and intercultural communication. You know, there's like ordering in a restaurant and getting a taxi. And then there's like somewhere way up high boss level. I need to convince a Shandong garlic farmer to change several centuries of agricultural practice to conform with this clipboard. I, I know actually you do a lot you do actually do a lot of presentations, Q and A's and interviews in Chinese. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I mean to talk about these issues in English is one thing. Talking about them in Chinese for a Chinese audience is also I mean it's a dip, it's a different style too. And I'm just curious when you get ready to do an interview or if it's a podcast or a TV interview, do you have a different approach to how you prepare for an interview or a talk if you're doing it in English versus if you're doing it for a Chinese audience and you're speaking predominantly in Mandarin? Yeah, I mean, I definitely prefer uh, the more natural, the better. Uh, if I'm prepare a speech and have to read it, it ends. I end up stumbling a bit. So I usually practice keywords, and especially I always have in presentations or trainings. I always have the Chinese and English on my slides, but I try to speak as naturally as possible and especially considering the audience uh, where if I really want them to listen, I find speaking in Chinese is definitely the most effective, even if there's there's translation available. Um, of course, I think there's certain things that I can uh, speak more clearly in English uh, at times, but um, especially going to some of our clients uh, and uh, doing workshops and trainings for their clients and you know visiting these very rural areas. I think it's very important to speak in Chinese and uh, really just highlight key topics. Uh, and that's definitely been a process because I think also seeing what's their interest and in knowing your audience uh, is really important because sometimes you can talk about all of these topics and they think it's uh, very you know high level or you know, beyond their scope and they they feel a bit uh, disempowered or knowing what to do. So trying to really hone down and knowing your audience and also thinking about what's in their interest and what 
keywords they care about. Uh, so I think in the last few years, also improving that, uh, and especially previously with working for an NGO and, and really focusing on our priorities and topics and seeing that that just didn't always work. Uh, so now being a company and thinking about our clients, we really have to think about what are their needs and, and you know, what they're, um, they're requiring of us. Uh, I would say, you know, with Sometimes it can seem more professional to speak in your um, native language. So with uh, ministries and, and government uh, uh, meetings, usually it is a sort of bilateral uh, workshop. So I'll, I'll speak in, in English there. But really to sort of build those connections, build the relationship and, and trust in China, speaking uh, in Chinese. And I'll speak with my team and uh, also with different uh, clients and maintaining those relationships too. So I definitely have also developed uh, important mentors in the industry who have really helped on the journey and also you know, previously bringing them to international conferences and being their uh, interpreter at some of these conferences. So that was also... Um, you know, learning some of the this um, sp very specific word keywords in in agriculture, and now more and more on you know climate change topics, and much more on the the technical aspect. For those people who are listening, who may be interested in kind of following this kind of career, just this is a, maybe a technical question too. But you know, say someone's in university now and they're thinking, okay, I want a career in China. My Chinese level is here. I'm listening to this person who's like, you know, talking at conferences. So, that, you know, their level is clearly much higher. In your own journey, did you feel after, it, and I can't remember, you know, this, full disclosure, actually, I, I knew Isabel back when she was, back when you were a study abroad student. I can't remember exactly what level of Chinese you were back then, but at what point, how has your Chinese progressed as part of your career? I'm, I'm asking this just because for those people who are kind of interested in pursuing a career in China, they may be wondering like, okay, how do I get there? Did you did you feel like uh, when you got out of college that you were already mostly there, or was it also just a process of working? Or how did the how did you develop that those skills? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, I was a little bit late in starting to study Chinese when I uh, entered uh, in the study abroad program. I was a level two, uh, whereas I think a lot of my friends and classmates were at least one level ahead because I started my sophomore year of college. Um, but I would say, you know, first, of course, it was such a struggle. It was, you know, sort of spending every evening, you know, studying, but I think really seeing it pay off. And I would say after the first semester, and I stayed two semesters and then also did an additional summer program after. So it was after the first semester that things really started to click and being able to hear and listen more and understand more. Whereas in the first semester, it was you know really trying to just get familiar with, with the words. And I, I would say that gave a good foundation. I think it's really important to know the characters, be able to read and write, but then really working. And uh, really my, my colleagues and my, um, my former boss, he hired me and said, oh, don't worry, you don't need to speak any Chinese. But after being in an office as the only foreigner with all all my Chinese colleagues, uh, you know, they really helped me. And I realized that I, I needed to 
really learn Chinese. So I would say in the first six months to a year, being able to go visit our projects, going to the field and working with my Chinese colleagues who actually didn't, some of them really didn't speak English. And they actually really helped me and encouraged me to to speak Chinese. And also I think focusing on agriculture and food uh, was really important in building up my vocabulary there. Whereas we also previously had textiles projects. And when I went to visit those, it was much more technical and and more difficult to understand. So I think it's also important if you already know the industry that you want to work in to focus on that industry and build up the vocabulary uh, for that industry because that will really help you to focus and be able to speak uh, professionally. Yeah, I think that is, is, that seems to be the case for a lot of people who work a long time in China that we, we become very good at talking about what we do. Uh, I find I, I can talk about history forever, but if you ask me a question about golf, like I'm like, mm. the one thing I wanted to kind of mention, and this is my this is my little soapbox moment, is that one of my concerns right now is that there are so few students. I mean, part of this is COVID, so we you know we don't know what the rebound will be, but you know there's been this three year gap where really there haven't been a lot of students studying in China, and looking at the numbers coming in, they're coming back, but not in the same robust numbers as they were, you know, five years ago, never mind, you know, 10 years ago when you were, or when you were a student. And the concern is, you know, I, I see the career that you've built here and the important work that you've done making these kind of connections. And what concerns me is where's the next, you know, where's the next wave, right, going to come from? Um, it's one thing to kind of study Chinese in a college in the U.S. or in Europe, it's another thing to have have that experience to kind of, you know, experience China on the ground in an educational way before it becomes a vocational, you know, uh, vocation. And uh, it is just something that, you know, I've, ta- I've talked about this on this podcast. My, my, co-worker, my, co- my co-host, David, has talked about this in this podcast. We just kind of wa- worry a little bit about where is that next generation going to come from if, uh, if the students aren't coming now. So we'll have to see where that, see where that leads. I wanted to end by asking, talking a little bit about the future. I mean, the company's only a couple of years old. Sounds like you are growing, re, you know, growing quickly. What's the future for the company? What's what's your future? What's the next step in your journey? Whether it's a China journey, international journey, what's the next steps look like for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, definitely still very China focused. Really need to, you know, think of China's. Uh, role in the world, and it is going to continue to be so important for so many countries, uh, whether it's uh, for you know agriculture, trade, uh, but other other industries, and also on global environmental governance. So I'll actually be. Um, living in Geneva uh, for a little bit uh, starting in September, but it'll be good to sort of take a step back from China and also um, see what's happening in Europe, because I think Europe is also really leading on environmental issues and establishing a lot of new laws under the EU Green Deal. So it'll be good to uh, get a, a different perspective, but I'll still be coming back uh, a lot to China in the next year and then moving back again uh, next summer back to back to China. And so the idea is to stay in China. We have set up a 
company uh, in the U.S., uh, and also increasing our uh, projects with uh, Brazilian Brazilian companies. And actually, my my partner is from Brazil, and he actually just became the COO of of Bella Teja. And so we're also seeing how to expand uh, with China-Brazil relationships since uh, President Lula was also just uh, here in China, and they signed a joint statement on climate change. So really seeing that there's opportunities to help uh, Brazilian and other Latin American countries with their their market access in China, because they are so far away, and um, it can sort of sometimes see, see like a black hole. And and so really helping with familiarizing uh, different uh, companies and industries uh, in China. But I, I also see it's so important to stay connected between the public and private sectors. Uh, so yeah, definitely you know staying planning to stay in China for the next five to ten years and and you know see see where things go. I think um, it's exciting, but also a lot of uncertainty as well. Can, can I ask just one more question? Uh, sort of current events. You know, there was the recent rainforest summit, um, and you know, it got you know quite rightly got a lot of coverage. I'm just curious. Um, do you have a take on that, particularly from the perspective of someone who's looking at this, if you will, from a, a perspective of working in China? And you know, how involved was China in the rainforest summit, either as an observer, participant, or just you know there? Yeah, observer or participant. What was your take on on the proceedings, and do you think there's going to be some positive uh, outcomes? Yes, I mean, I think uh, it is really great to see an event like this organized, and especially seeing President Lula of Brazil leading that, and seeing the importance of the Amazon rainforest for the global economy and you know society. Uh, I think. There's still uh, a bit of reservation in terms of what China's role will be. I would emphasize that within the joint statement between China and Brazil, no illegal deforestation was emphasized. And so, uh, you know, seeing how the two countries can work together to protect the Amazon. But I think it's still a matter of how to operationalize that and implement that. And I think, um, you know, we need to see how to connect those the ministries, the the companies, and those that are really you know connect connected to make that happen. Uh, I think uh, China, and we also saw you know the statement from um, from the U.S. for uh, President Biden on addressing global international deforestation. Uh, so very much a uh, you know not interfering interfering in the sovereignty of other countries. And so far, that's. Been China's stance, but I think uh, as China's working more with uh, the EU on uh, green environmental projects and deforestation is now also a topic that we're uh, supporting in, that it, it will become a, a topic. But again, Ch- I think China won't interfere directly uh, in the sovereignty of the uh, Amazon countries like Brazil. Well, Isabel, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. It, it's been great to share your China journey, the things that you're working on now. And you know, I would encourage those of you who are listening who are interested in working in China and making a difference um, to, to uh, you know, consider that there are, there are opportunities here, um, you know, even now, and that you know, there are ways to, to make some change. So I really want to thank you for coming on today. Thank you for the invitation, Jeremiah. And and good luck for your time in Geneva, and we'll welcome you back to the Middle Kingdom next summer. Thank you all very much for listening, and I will talk to you again on another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. (laughs) 